Hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I am, of course, Simon Taylor and joined by the one and only Mr. Kai Sheffield, head of crypto of Visa. How are you doing today, Kai? I am fantastic. I'm excited to talk about the crypto regulatory environment. I don't know if that's normal. Should I be this excited? Uh, but I am. Let's let's get into it. Super excited too. And as you said, we wanted to dive into the world of regulation and crypto. We're going to take a look at the current state. Is crypto actually regulated? I thought the whole thing was unregulated, right? And how's it different in different parts of the world? And, and what's kind of happening? And what can we do as an industry in the future? So we're going to go through all of that. And to dig into it, we are joined by Oh, wow, some amazing guests. Starting off with Chris Brummer, who is Professor and Faculty Director of the Institute of International Economic Law. That is very hard for a host to read on a podcast, but I'm very pleased to have you with us. How are you doing today? I am doing just fine. I can't believe that I'm hearing someone eager to talk about crypto regulation, which just is uh, quite inspiring. Uh, you wouldn't believe how many listeners are as well. So I am absolutely pumped for this. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, just very, very briefly as well. You also authored a paper looking at disclosure NFTs, disclosure DAOs, DIDs. We're going to talk about all of that as we get into the show. Um, and we're also joined by Patrick South, who's head of sales at TRM Labs. Patrick, how are you doing today? I'm well, I'm well. The energy in this room is palpable. Uh, really excited to, to have the conversation and glad others are, are interested in the topic. I blame the caffeine. Uh, it's, that's, that's my excuse. Chris, Kai, that's just, I think that's just your default, right? That's just who you guys are. And yeah, I love that. Much. I, <laughs> Alrighty, let's, let's start off. Um, Chris, I'm going to come to you first. You must get this question a lot. Is crypto regulated? So I do get that question a lot, usually after the word, what is crypto? Uh, you know, and, mm. and I think that, that, that in and of itself is kind of telling because, you know, even the term crypto is at times a bit of a, uh, a, a, a term of art, so is the term regulation. And I think that very often when people are talking about regulation, it, it divides into a series of questions. Number one, is a certain activity subject to regulation? And then number two, is there someone who's actively regulating in that space? And, and, and you know, the answers for both of those can be very, very different. So one is kind of a jurisdictional question, which is, is this something that can be regulated? And then, you know, who is the cop on the block is, is, is the other. And that second question, particularly in Washington, D.C., starts to become a little bit blurry, depending on, obviously, the, the specific crypto asset that we're talking about. Patrick, do you want to follow that lead and just sort of talk about uh, the some of the activities that are and some of the ones where it's more of a gray area? Yeah, certainly. Um, I think Chris did a really nice job of outlining like the, the bifurcated approach, if you will. Is, is to how to think about this. I think the question that is more top of people's minds right now isn't, is crypto regulated, but it is how is crypto regulated? And depending on the jurisdiction that you operate in, that answer can either be relatively simple in terms of a very clear explanation as to how crypto is regulated or infinitely complex in terms of the number of regimes that have some sort of regulatory purview into the type of activities that are being performed. So if I am a VASP, for instance, a virtual asset service provider um, that operates in, in the United States is, is a jurisdiction, there may be several different regulatory agencies that have some degree of oversight on me. So um, I may have CFTC oversight for some portions of my business. Perhaps I'm a, a regulated DCM. I may have some oversight from FinCEN if I'm a money services business or I'm facilitating, I'm an MTL. There's a variety of different ways that I could end up being regulated. And I think, think folks are, are trying to get comfortable with that. Now, that's using the U.S. as an example. I think there's a number of more 
I didn't say more advanced. There's a number of other advanced regimes that have uh, put in place some good infrastructure around this. So Japan, the JFSA, for instance, has put a lot of thought into how they regulate crypto asset activities, the Monetary Authority of Singapore. And so for businesses, crypto businesses that operate in the landscape, there's kind of a question of, as Chris highlighted, what sort of activities am I engaged in? And then is the regulator and the jurisdictions that I operate, do they have some type of oversight regime? And what do I need to do to comply with that? Now, where we're seeing more and more gray areas these days are as folks enter the DeFi landscape, or you hear more and more on NFT marketplaces and this type of activities. And there's a question of like, is an NFT by itself you know, a security and subject to securities regimes that exist, or, or is it not? And therefore, it's more analogous to how art marketplaces are regulated or unregulated today. And so a lot of it really comes down to the activity that, that is occurring itself versus some sort of like broad paintbrush to say, if you are doing X, you are Y. And I think that's where we spend a lot of time helping folks think through. So guys, my, 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 my homework here, like uh, based on what you just said, I think there are like easy mode activities where I'm using crypto to make a payment. Therefore, I would fall under the jurisdiction, depending on what jurisdiction I'm doing that, where in the world I'm doing it, I would fall under various types of payment regulation. So I might be a money service business. I'm allowed to move money on behalf of my customers. And therefore, in the US, that would be an MTL license. In Europe, we would call that an electronic money institution license or an EMI license. And there are many similar equivalent uh, license regimes that different regulators have around the world. Uh, for example, if I'm trading things that look like a commodity, Ethereum and Bitcoin in, in the United States, that would mean I'm subject to the CFTC. But then there are all of these other tokens where it's, it's a little bit less obvious and you start ending up in the capital markets, financial markets world where um, the European Banking Authority and ESMA and the SEC and um, CFPB start getting involved. So you have this like Venn diagram, the most complex Venn diagram of the world of which jurisdiction and which activity am I performing? By the way, we're at a frontier, so we don't really know because there's so much innovation happening here. Is, is, that, a, is that a fair summary? So, so I, I think that's a very fair summary. I, I just want to pick up on, on, on that observation. I like the Venn diagram. And, you know, depending on what country you're operating in, just how deep that Venn diagram goes can, can, can depend, um, you know, on the facts and circumstances. But, you know, to, to add to the complexity is that in the United States, you, you have, you know, this top level of, let's call it federal regulation, depending on what the product is. But we also have the states who have something to say about how different aspects of the crypto ecosystem are regulated. In the European Union, obviously you have EU uh, regulations and uh, directives, but you also have member states who are usually involved and tasked with enforcement. And you know how you exercise that enforcement, you know, what do you prioritize in your enforcement? All of that can shape really how an ecosystem ends up uh, looking and, 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 and frankly, what kinds of qualitative features it can have. Can I just, and I'm just going to add one, one other thing to what Patrick said, because I do think it's, it's useful. Um, in the United States for a very long time, there was this argument or, or claims you'd hear, this is an unregulated space. That's not really correct. It's not unregulated. It's not as if there are no laws and no rules and no particular uh, regimes that can be relevant to crypto asset transactions. I mean, you know, you, you have, as I said, state laws all the way down to common law fraud in the United States, all the way up to very specific rules and regulations about how certain types of businesses 
and operations uh, are permitted to be um, uh, facilitated, you know, licensing regimes. It really is a question about whether or not uh, different crypto asset regimes are optimally regulated and whether or not there are gaps and, and whether or not those gaps uh, either create ambiguity uh, whereby actors are just sort of going along and, and there's no supervision at all, or whether or not th there are real gaps. And there, there are one or two very significant ones in, in, in the United States. And the question is, well, what's the regulatory response to those gaps? Because even where there is a gap, a regulator can choose to enforce certain kinds of actions and kind of force the issue and, 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 and to create law through lawsuits. Right, uh, or a regulatory agency can, um, you know, try to provide guidance, you know, that that may not technically be under its purview, but to offer some kind of soft law nudging to different kinds of market participants to give them a sense as to what their expectations are. Now, you know, we can go through and, and you know, to any kind of detail that you want, you know, like, you know, if you're security, even if you call it a security, like we have these tests, these ad hoc tests that drive Europeans completely crazy as to when you have a security or not, you know, um, an investment of money in a common enterprise where you're relying on the efforts of others, you know, these little tests that, that, that you have to apply to every single individual crypto asset. And then even if, you don't fall in that bucket, then you're de facto a commodity. That does not mean that the CFTC regulates you directly. It just means that the CFTC has the power to at least go in and exercise its anti-fraud authority to sniff out sort of bad actors. And they only have the power to really regulate, to like to 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 impose substantive requirements on different kinds of actors. You know, it, its power is strongest where there is some kind of derivatives contract that references that specific commodity. So, you know, it, it's this jigsaw of sorts in, in the United States, uh, and uh, it, it keeps everyone busy, including founders. It's as clear as that, Chris. You just you, you just outlined it. We can end the show now. We've, we've answered all the questions. Like, when I, when I hear all this, like, my head just hurts. I'm just like, there's so many different things to try and navigate. I think it's important to stay, take a step back and say, okay, regulation for what purpose? And what is the ultimate goal that we're trying to solve. Like, let's look at this from first principles. I think, Chris, you covered this a, a bit in your paper. You know, just saying how something should be regulated is really the first step. But then once you decide how it should be regulated, what should those regulations do with an end goal in mind? And I'd love for you to expand more on that. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, and, and I think it's very important. I mean, many of the rules that are written for our financial services in the United States, you know, these, these are New Deal rules, rules written in the 1930s. A lot of people just say, well, they're old rules, so, you know, let's throw them out. It's, it's not so much that. It's just to say that the very context in which those rules were written, there were certain kinds of assumptions that were in place. There were assumptions about market structure. There were assumptions about um, technology. There were assumptions about retail investors and what kind of information they had access to. And all of those assumptions don't exist anymore. So therefore, when you're trying to think about how to regulate any kind of new technology, you really need to always ask yourself at a very fundamental level, what are we trying to do? And then once you have your values in place about what are you trying to do, you can actually look at the particularities of the technology to kind of get to where you want to go. And, and that specific example had to do with, with um, uh, disclosure. I'm not trying to jump the gun, but I think it's a really useful kind of example 
you know, uh, you know, when you think about the 1930s, where you had companies like think about Ford Motor Company, companies are going public with boards of directors, companies that are, you know, where the material information that you'd want to know in order to invest in a company has to do with its corporate governance and its financial statements, right? I mean, we're in a different sector where the kinds of things that people are perhaps most interested in you know, it's technology even more than the finances. You're interested more in blockchain governance than you are corporate governance. You know, you, you want to know certain kinds of what defines what is important um, are very different. And and also the availability of that information is very different. So, you know, when you're talking about public blockchain, that information is largely available in terms of code. It's available to sophisticated technological uh, or technologically sophisticated actors. So then you have to ask yourself, which is which was not necessarily the case when you're thinking about the 1933 and 34 Act, when you're thinking about well, what information is available is usually to an insider or to a financially sophisticated actor. So when you think about disclosure, even you have to say, okay, well, what do we want to disclose? And then who do we want it for? I mean, the technologically sophisticated folks already have access to lots of things to get the information that they need. So maybe we should think about the end user. Maybe we should think about the retail everyday person and think about how do we create a disclosure regime for those folks and then ask ourselves, is the existing disclosure regime, does it move us towards that purpose or not? And I think that whether or not it be disclosure, whether or not it be banking or lending or investment policies or whatever it is, you, you kind of have to take a step back and ask yourselves, what do you want? What's new or different about the technology? And then what kind of regime can help move you in the direction of achieving those those goals. Chris, I love that point about intent. Why are we doing this in the first place? And you talked about consumer protection. You talked about a, a bunch of other good reasons as well in terms of fairness, um, efficiency, and so on. Patrick, there are some challenges, though. I mean, if we can have good intent. We can have oldish rules that are well-intended, but this new innovative industry is facing some challenges. So what are the challenges you sort of see the industry facing? And of course, the, the consumers, the users, the entrepreneurs in the industry? Yeah, it's, it's a really, really wonderful question. There are, there are two main pieces here. Piece number one, I think Chris highlighted nicely, which is there's an existing regime. There are some people that don't love the answers to the existing regime, which, which means it, it, it doesn't mean that there are necessarily gaps. It just means it's not always the easiest to comply with existing uh, regulation per se. And so there's this uh, again, split approach between, you know, it's not regulated versus unregulated, but oftentimes it's just like compliant versus non-compliant. And then, and then there truly is, there's, there's a, a sliver where the, there are gaps. And I think regulators are, are, are trying to approach that today to figure out what are those, you know, identify those gaps and then figure out how you fill that with, with, you know, guidance, or is it, you know, uh, truly new regulation or, or something that's, that's mandated con congressionally or, or otherwise, depending on the apparatus. Um, on the latter piece, in terms of identifying where those friction points exist and, and where those gaps are today, uh, I think much of that, uh, our industry in particular, likes to think that we're really unique in terms of the technology. And a lot of it on a first principles basis, uh, truly existing regulation applies, and we just need to get comfortable with that, figure out how this aligns to regulation that, that is in place today. But there are instances where uh, I think like DeFi in particular is, is it's really, really fascinating around this in terms of looking at what our existing apparatus looks like today and some of the nuance around DeFi in terms of how that's going to be regulated. And so 
Um, again, pointing to to U.S. in particular, um, there's been a lot of thought that has been done amongst you know, securities and commodities regulators, so the SEC and the CFTC, in terms of, hey, can something start as a security and over time become to use a bit of an archaic term, but like sufficiently decentralized to become a to transform itself into a commodity, and there um, there there was some language around this being a possibility, and um, I think there's still a lot of question marks as to how this this occurs. And given the Cambrian explosion of activity we've seen in this space, like literally the the pure number of like ERC twenty tokens, the number of assets of that token contract type on Ethereum, at least, it, it's exceeding like 400,000 different types of, of digital assets. And there's no real path for these per se in terms of um, how something can transform from a, a, a security to a commodity to a currency um, over time. And so I think there does, uh, maybe back to your point, Simon, you, you, you talked about this Venn diagram. I think about this Venn diagram as like infinitely complex. And what comes to mind is I think all of us having operated in this space, remember the money flower, the CBDC money flower that exists. And it was in every presentation from like, you know, 2018 to 2020. And like everyone like used it. We almost need like a regulatory money flower. And, and I see it being like as complex as that, where there's like so many overlapping edges, where there's like very small areas that will say like, you are regulated here and here's how you're regulated. Um, and there is not an easy button if I want to stand up, you know, if I just want to go to market, and I have an innovative concept and I want to launch something that is, you know, a composable application within the DeFi ecosystem today, what are my regulatory responsibilities? There is not an, an easy answer to how I can do that, a push button compliant approach today. Let me preface by saying at least not something I'm aware of. Well, and the other th is compounded by the fact that this software is global. It's 24-7, yep. and it's almost permissionless for any developer to go create it. And when you're a regulator or a policymaker, innovation, and your job is to prevent harm to consumers, things that are innovative, that have scale and billions, if not trillions of dollars riding on the line, look an awful lot like risk more than innovation. So you're going to try and protect those consumers, but not necessarily with the modern context of the upside and the unintended consequences of copy pasting the rules you had from yesterday into tomorrow. And so the problem with taking your time is there could be harm to consumers. The problem with rushing something to, to market is that you could end up over-regulating or, or killing a, a, an area of technological innovation. So I was really uh, hopeful when the uh, executive order from the Biden administration recognized the nuance of the importance of the technology sector to the United States and the strategic asset that the technology sector is to the United States. And therefore, the uh, sort of almost, almost first do no harm approach that um, the Clinton administration took in 96 being being mirrored and echoed, but of this brigading of different government departments to go write white papers and figure out what the heck's going on here, especially when DeFi, as you say, is, is so incredibly experimental. Yeah, just to say, it was encouraging to, to see throughout the executive order, and I think a broader tone of, you know, the understanding of the inevitability of this technology, that the technology itself is not going to go away and that there will be people who develop it. And which jurisdiction those people are in and you know, what those products end up doing, it's still you know, very much to be determined. But I think looking at it in this holistic manner of what are the risks, what are the new risks that didn't exist before, and what are the opportunities that could come from it, 
And being able to have many agencies uh, involved, the Department of Labor, Department of Commerce, you know, US aid, uh, instead of only focusing on the risk. And at the end of the day, entrepreneurs you know, need clarity. And if they don't get clarity, they're either going to go someplace where they can, or even just we're seeing the type of developers that are building this stuff. Many of them, they just might not care. They might go someplace you know, across the world and be a pseudonymous developer publishing code on GitHub. And I think then it just becomes even harder to protect consumers if that becomes the norm and that becomes the response that developers and entrepreneurs take to a perceived lack of clarity that they could get. Indeed. And hopefully we see this first do no harm approach and, and uh, Section 230 like thing come out of the Biden executive order. Europe has taken a bit of a different approach. Um, there's uh, the MICA regulation that's um, gone into trilogs now looks uh, like it's going to happen. And that involves an awful lot of disclosures and sensible things around asset backed stable coins. Um, but there is also a recent rule around quote unquote unhosted wallets um, or self-custody wallets, like a leather wallet in your pocket. Um, crypto tokens can be held by you, not just by a bank or a third party on your behalf. And what the uh, European Union looks like it, it will come out and say, which may get changed because there's still a lot of work to, to do, is that uh, any transfer using software from my leather wallet to your leather wallet, cash on the street, must be recorded and must be KYC'd, which is Unpractic, impractical, unworkable, and, and industry killing, frankly. Um, but it, it, it may uh, end up hitting the brick wall uh, as people try and think about how they implement it. Uh, we are with that random uh, comment from, from the host here, uh, editorializing somewhat, uh, going to take a quick break whilst we hear from our sponsors and we'll be back shortly to look at what can we do about all of this and, and where's it all going. This episode is brought to you by Visa one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. So we're going to go out on a limb here and assume that you're enjoying this podcast. We're also going to assume that, like us, you're a fintech nerd and that our podcasts, live events, video series and documentaries keep you tapped into everything that's happening across fintech and connected to the fintech community. So if you're interested in creating content that informs and entertains, then you should definitely chat to our media team and get in touch on sponsors at 11fs.com. So in the second half of the show, we want to talk you know, more about what the industry is doing and what tools are being developed uh, that can help you know, mitigate some risks and and solve you know, some of these challenges. So maybe Patrick, let, let's start with you. And it seems like a, a big area of focus for regulators is this question around you know AML and and illicit finance risks. That these are you know public decentralized networks that anyone can transact over. But it turns out there's an industry. <laughs> there are tools that are being developed to help mitigate that. You know, can you help just us understand what are crypto forensics? How are they being used? What are some of the things that you're building at TRM? And how is it different than the existing financial system in ways that you know, people mitigate against AML risks? Yeah, certainly. For one reason or another, there's a lot of uh, mystique, unintentional mystique around these type of, of tool sets. Um, but at the end of the day, what we're doing is we, we look at uh, open permissionless blockchains 
And anyone can go use a block explorer today where you can see the transfer of value from one address to another. And so you can literally see an alphanumeric wallet address. So 0x1234 is sending you know, X asset to 0x1235. Um, and that is open and available to, to everyone. It's, it's one of the wonders of a uh, you know, triple entry accounting system here. Uh, but what companies like ours do, so like TRM Labs is a blockchain intelligence product, is we help to assign real world entities into this equation. And so instead of saying, hey, 0x1235 sent X amount of funds to 0x1236, we will say, well, funds went from Coinbase to, uh, uh, to Huobi, for instance. And so we look at it assigning at what we call attribution to entities and helping to enable intelligence from this sort of activity. And the way that this is then utilized is it's utilized by cryptocurrency businesses for AML compliance. It's utilized by financial institutions for AML compliance. And regulators and law enforcement use it to meet the needs of, of, of their mission sets. Why this is important is twofold. On the law enforcement side, they now have more information than ever before to identify what bad actors are doing on chain, where they're receiving funds from, where they're sending funds to. And you can see the type of activities that, that, that are occurring on chain. So if someone is um, sending continuous donations, they're funding donations through a certain cryptocurrency exchange, uh, and then sending those funds to a terrorist financing address, well, now that's something that can be identified on chain that law enforcement can take action around. Uh, conversely, you can have a financial institution that wants to go and offer products in the space. Perhaps a bank is thinking about enabling subcustody. And so clients can now you know, buy, sell, hold uh, cryptocurrencies within their platform. Well, uh, the bank historically has been responsible for uh, reporting on suspicious activity. And oftentimes that's in the format of a SAR, a suspicious activity report, or, or an STR, a suspicious transaction report. And the reason that occurs is their, their FIU, uh, the financial intelligence unit that oversees them in the US, it's an entity like FinCEN, they, they don't have insights into what bank ABC is, is doing, right? It's a proprietary database of, of transactions that's occurring. And so that bank is responsible for monitoring the activity of, uh, of their users, of their customers. And then when they notice suspicious activity, they retroactively report it to their FIU. And so there's an asynchronous relationship there. Well, thanks to this type of technology, there can now be a synchronous relationship where if you know Kai took funds from a, a darknet market and sent those to his bank, the FIU would now have real-time intelligence using these type of tool sets that Kai had done this. So at the same point in time that a bank is realizing this, the FIU would, and there can now be more, more actionable intelligence uh, being taken versus the asynchronous relationship where the bank doesn't figure that out for 30 days and then reports it to their FIU afterwards. Super interesting. So Chris, how do you think about on-chain analytics? And as you talk to policymakers, are are there other applications for it? It seems like very clear, you know, you know, AML enforcement, law enforcement agencies are using it. Do you see other ways that that can be used, you know, for regulators to accomplish certain goals? Well, you know, I, I've been, you know, this, just going back to guess to my to my uh, research lately, you know, I've been really trying to think seriously about the technology stack that's available both to founders and and to end users and to regulators, right? And I think that when you start to think about even 
you know, blockchain technology, uh, cryptocurrency te uh, technology as a technology stack, you, you get to some really interesting questions. This just goes back to the original disclosure questions. Now, I've been inspired in part by TRM Labs and some of the work that folks have been doing when it comes to AML KYC work. And I've been asking, well, you know, are there certain kinds of principles to that work that could perhaps be transposable to securities law? Since when you think about securities law, a lot of time if you're, say, you know, um, in a way, you have to be whitelisted to as an accredited investor, maybe for a private transaction, or you have to be whitelisted in, in the sense of having received in some way or another uh, disclosure in order to participate in a fully sanctioned um, securities offering or something, right? You know, so are, are there ways? It's not really the, like a like a forensics um, approach, but but can you build infrastructure to support literally the blossoming of this? ecosystem, uh, but can you do it in a way with crypto-native tools? And I think that that's a really interesting kind of a question, and, and it gets back to the, the issue of, of rethinking these original ideas, like what does disclosure mean? Qu'est-ce que c'est? Disclosure. You know, what does that mean um, you know, for uh, you know, uh, crypto-native systems? And so as a, just a little bit of a running start to, to where, what my idea was, was, you know, and going back to securities law, the way that the technology stack works right now for securities law is a company, before it goes public or before it issues securities, it goes out, writes up its disclosures, files it in something that many of our listener, of your listeners may know and love or, or not, the Edgar database over at the SEC, where basically that information is filed and no one ever reads it except for you know, analysts over in large banks. So disclosure isn't really meant to be read, it's meant to be filed. And it's not necessarily geared towards the everyday person who's trying to navigate securities transactions. And I think that in, in DeFi, that's not a very good model. I think that in DeFi, where you're dealing with lots of end users who are navigating new kinds of technologies and the like, you would ideally want disclosures that are read and not just filed. And then that gets you to think through, well, are there possible disclosure delivery mechanisms um, native to the crypto space that can really meet that end user where they are, right? And I think that's a very interesting question. And so, you know, I, I, I'm, uh, you know, a professor of low-hanging fruit, so I just start with the most basic thing. I say, well, what do most people really know about? And like, okay, NFTs, you know, NFTs are a really interesting place to start. They're popular. People, you know, are at least familiar with the concept of, 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 of NFTs. And, you know, they, they, from a technological standpoint, they you know, obviously allow for the representation of, of uh, virtually anything on, on blockchains. But I, I like them because they can embed or, or could be embedded with or within smart contracts to create what I describe as a new disclosure experience for end users and investors. And I really do mean that. Like, like, like what is your, that disclosure experience in DeFi, right? And can that disclosure experience be better than the disclosure experience, which is there, frankly, isn't any, uh, you know, in your traditional, let's call it SecFi space. And I think that um, you know, DeFi offers some really interesting opportunities to do that. And I run through a, a couple of different kinds of models. And one model, you know, sort of the most extravagant model, would even be sort of rethinking what kind of tokenization thesis you would have for an NFT, where you're actually tokenizing a person's engagement with disclosure. So you're not just you know, tokenizing a person receiving some kind of disclosure, but you, know, you could gamify that experience 
in such a way such that a person re receives an NFT, a, a disclosure NFT, it's held in your wallet, and then over time, not could, not only is that a potential passport um, uh, to the more complex or riskier protocols, but it also gets you now to rethink things like sophistication, right? Like, I mean, how how many rich people do you know who don't know anything about DeFi, right? I mean, you know, uh, you know, uh, simply an accredited investor standard isn't probably the best way to judge sophistication. But can you create new models for people? who may not even have those wealth thresholds, but who may be very sophisticated to, to build their technology literacy. And I think that there are all kinds of interesting ways to go. Chris, I love that point about sophistication. So baked into the post 1930s securities regulation and a lot of regulators globally is the idea that sophistication equals has lots of money. And the, the assumption is has lots of money, can afford to get professional advice or can afford to lose that money without major consequences. Uh, and therefore they, they get access to more risk, but they also get access to more opportunity and sophisticated might mean DFV, you know, deep fucking value on Reddit, looking into meme stocks and identifying things that could really work for the activist consumer investor who is well informed, may not have a accreditation from a recognized entity, may not have something, but there are new ways to, to kind of do that. So I think rethinking what sophisticated means is a great first principle to start thinking about how do I then use this technology stack to evidence it? And how many times have you signed up for a product and just gone, yes, next, yes, next? And how much of financial services is about, oh, well, it said it in the terms and conditions. You know, we covered our own, we CYA, we covered our own ass. So, you know, we got it in the terms and conditions. The consumer was made fully aware. We did our job. The consumer wasn't aware. They were like, yes, next, give me the free Wi-Fi, please. Like whatever it is that, that I just want to get to the end. Maybe, maybe we could actually have effective rules and design if we use this technology stack to go, not only did somebody access this NFT and view the disclosure, they spent a little while looking at that disclosure. Let's 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 add to the momentum, let's add to their record of sophistication, much in the same way that Patrick and TRM Labs identifies the relationship between different entities and activities with crypto forensics. Could I not use that same sophistication to identify people that are becoming more sophisticated as investors? And that's an interesting idea, Chris. So I gave a keynote for for FinCEN, and I, you know, was literally driving on that 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 exact same topic, which is, are there ways? Because ultimately, we're talking about building reputation, either on or off chain reputational systems, in a way that could actually open up you know, opportunities for people. I mean, literally, a kind of financial inclusion play. But it's 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 can you use the same technology perhaps that's used to keep people out in ways to also get people in and and, and you know and, and, and in doing that to sort of build a healthier ecosystem and to do it in a way that's actually superior to the legacy you know regulatory uh, stack and by the way again that that's able to to move the mandate even for the regulators further but also in a way that can inspire software engineers you know so that your technology stack isn't getting superseded by uh, the technology, but instead to make sure that your technology stack is growing with the technology. I love the idea of just thinking of disclosure as a product and what is the experience for the consumer. And also this notion of, I think what makes DeFi particularly really unique is the composability where you interact with a DeFi application that actually has like multiple other protocols and applications on the back end that it's interacting with. And so can you have a 
disclosure that is composable. You know, if you're going to use one DeFi app, have you used the other two or three apps that it has relied on? Do you understand how they work? And that makes it exponentially more complex, but seems so important. And so maybe Patrick, like I know you you played around in in this space of interacting with different DeFi apps. Like, how do you see the current state today if you're a new consumer coming in, like, and you see an opportunity to earn yield, what is, how do you know what, where that yield comes from and what the risks are? And then you know, what ways can we use kind of this thinking of disclosure as a product you know, to improve what that experience is? Yeah, it's such a great question. I'm, I'm worried that coming out of this, I'm not just going to go uh, be able to like ape into the next coin after Chris's disclosures come into play. I'm actually going to have to... Uh, I understand what's occurring, but perhaps my, uh, my, my, my current balance would, would indicate I, I am unsophisticated. It's really fascinating to think about. I loved Simon's example of, hey, if we're just accepting you know, public Wi-Fi today, it's just it's yes, next. And I think about the, the behavioral patterns that people engage in today as they, as, as they interact with DeFi and, and new NFT mints and things like that. And it is, uh, I mean, many of us on this call have participated in an, in an NFT mint. And I'm just thinking about that process where it's, you know, you know, the launch time, you're sitting there refreshing your browser, you're, you're getting ready to click mint. And it's just uh, the the disclosure experience within that will be an interesting one to like, you know, are you going to take the time like you've internally, you've already made the decision that like this is going to occur. And so it'll be really interesting to see how we bake in disclosures like pre mint where people may be like pre authorized or whitelisted because they fully ingested and, and comprehended um, what the actual disclosure was that like they're then able to participate in, in some sort of mint like that. Um, on the DeFi side, like what's available to us today in terms of understanding is, is very limited, frankly. So some of the conversations we've had, just bring them all together. It's like one, there's no centralized database that I'm aware of today that gives some sort of scoring as to what an asset is. Like founding team, uh, are they a non, are they not? What experience do they have building in the space? What is the spectrum of whether or not this thing is considered as you know, security or otherwise? Like what, uh, from a regulatory basis, what is this asset considered across jurisdictions? Um, have the smart contracts been audited? There, there are so many, like what is the, the likelihood of a rug pull to happen? Like there will be some really interesting products built specifically for consumers that will enable consumers to go in and develop a very quick understanding of this. And so we think that this will, this will be a space that will evolve drastically over the coming years in terms of people being able to identify the risk profile, the big R risk. It's not just AML risk or something else, but I mean, we encounter rug pulls daily. We encounter all sorts of activity that um, whether or not the smart contracts are audited, et cetera, that consumers should be aware of. Indeed, that new type of sophistication is is a whole new world in, in DeFi, isn't it? Uh, there's a very interesting project called rabbithole.gg or rabbithole, go down the crypto rabbit hole. And one of the things they do is, is give you an on-chain credential for having completed certain tasks. But the interesting thing about an on-chain credential is compare that to trying to figure out if somebody's an accredited investor or where they were last KYC'd. Like, if your parents opened an account at Wells Fargo in 1960, whatever it was, when they were a kid, or, or I'm dating myself here, maybe in the 1980s for you guys, who knows? Um, but then how, how good is that information? How relevant is it? How much can I rely on that paper source? Whereas actually, if, if somebody has KYC'd this wallet, in fact, if three, four, five people have KYC'd the wallet, you get this idea of compounding confidence. 
over time, my confidence in that wallet increases. And I also get compounding credentials. And in this day and age where I can go to college and I can spend tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars and have a low ROI as a consumer on it, or I can be in Discord servers looking for the next NFT, doing deep research with that time, like who is to say that these people are wrong spending their time in the digital economy and perhaps they should be compounding their credentials in a way that's digitally provable. So compounding disclosures, compounding credentials, are this whole interesting subset to try and unpick, Chris. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, you know, you're signing that uh, apparently you and I need to write a paper the next time because, uh, you know, certainly, you know, you're, you're reading my mind. And, you know, when you look at uh, the, the the white paper, we, we I actually cite to, to Rabbit Hole and, you know, even the whole decentralized identity question, right? Because mm-hmm. there you have the, you know, this question about is there a way to leverage technology in ways in which you're able to accumulate credentials and to build reputation both on and off chain? And, you know, to a certain extent, part of the conversation in decentralized identity, you know, there's a little bit of a sort of West Side Story kind of thing, you know, NFTs versus uh, DIDs, decentralized uh, identifiers. And I I don't think that's really the best way to look at it, because um, when you look at NFTs and, you know, we are talking about composability, programmability, the ecosystem in which NFTs operate as compared to to off-chain, you can imagine all kinds of hybrid instruments, um, you know, to really get to where you want to go and, and, and to empower investors and end users where, for example, you're, you know, putting a DID in, inside of an NFT and using it as, or the NFT as like a pointer to it, to a DID, to an off-chain DID. I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which you can build really interesting systems to you know, uh, to to double down on and and to build um, on-chain I- identities or or confidence, you know, in ways that are really important. And I and I did want to also add, you know, the paper also talks about other kinds of ways to think through these problems. Like you know, you can think of disclosure NFTs. You can think of like a disclosure DAO. You know, you know, and to think through obviously the governance questions about what would that look like, and how would that relate to other off-chain initiatives. You know, um, and, and to structure different relationships and interactions in ways to produce and to be very creative about what those disclosures would mean to facilitate the kind of experience that Patrick wants when he wants to go and buy, you know, to, to push that mint button. And I think that's uh, where the future may may very well end up. Patrick, Kai, I can tell you wanted to jump in there, but my producers are telling me we're at time already. Can you believe it? That this could have just... I could just go and go and go. This is such an interesting subject. We should get like a, a whole day on 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 just this stuff. Like we weren't kidding when we said we love this stuff. Uh, and if you love this stuff, listeners, please be sure to leave us a review to so that we know about it. So that does unfortunately wrap up today's discussion. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Uh, where can people find out more about you and what you're up to? Let's start with Chris. Well, you know, if you're really interested into in the paper, uh, I have my blog on disclosure NFTs uh, on Medium. If you just sort of uh, Google introducing disclosure NFTs, that'll take you to the article. Fantastic. Patrick, how about you? I'd say start by talking to Chris because he's uh, way more intelligent on, on all of this. But if uh, if you are interested in connecting, I'm Patrick at TRMLabs.com uh, and, and would love to continue the conversation. Kai, how about you? On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and Visa.com slash crypto. 
You'll find me at SY Taylor and, of course, at 11FS.com and as well at uh, Global Digital Finance, uh, GDF.org, uh, an organization that produces standards around how disclosure should work and, and other things that is that is natively global. Uh, thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, do remember to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. We have so much in the works and we're excited for you to join us there. Stay rare, stay weird and LFG people. Let's do this.